All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Skype a Scientist Live. Today, we are going to be learning all about what it's like to be a veterinarian for some large animals. Um, so I hope you've brought your curiosity with you. We are super excited today to have Sabo with us. Um, if you'd like to introduce, well, before, actually, before we really get into the questions, I have one thing that I want to tell you all about. So right now, we at Skype a Scientist are in the middle of a pledge drive. It just started today. Um, and so what we're doing is uh, for every 10 classrooms that we have matched with a scientist in the United States, um, we have one bubble on our map. So you can see uh, in this picture here, each of these bubbles represents 10 classrooms that we matched with a scientist um, in the year 2020. And so uh, people have already been donating today to fill in these bubbles. If you can, go to paypal.me slash Skype a Scientist. And in the memo section of that donation, you can put in what state you'd like uh, to have bubbles filled. We're breaking it up in the United States into teams this year. Um, I'm representing team Mid-Atlantic uh, Mid because I'm in Philadelphia. And so if you can help support our program, this is our biggest fundraiser for the year to help keep our program going. So if you can do that, that would be super awesome. If not, don't worry about it. Uh, we know it's been a pretty tight year for a lot of people, so don't stress out about it. Um, but enough of that, I will stop this and uh, let's get into your animal question. So Sabo, would you like to tell us who you are, what you do, and why you like it? Ooh, I can't, we can't really hear you. Has something changed in your sound? Let me see. Oh, that sounds much better already. Is that better? Yeah, that's okay. All right. Great. So, hi there, guys. My name is Oscar Sabo. I am a large animal veterinarian, and I practice mostly on cows and uh, some horses. You're quiet again? I, I wonder mm -hmm. if, like, you can move your computer, because when you were leaning in, it sounded really good. Is that better? That is better. Okay, we'll try that. That sounds great. Okay. For the third time, hello everyone. Uh, my name is Dr. Sabo. I am a large animal veterinarian in western portion of New York State. I mostly practice on cows, as you can see here, and also a little bit on horses, beef cows, sheep, goats, alpacas, llamas, pigs, all kinds of stuff. Pretty much anything that you can have on a farm or that lives in a larger type of population. Um, so I went to college uh, at a liberal arts school called Colgate University in Chicago. And then I went to four years of veterinary school after that at Cornell University, also in New York State. Although I'm from Ohio originally. <laughs> uh, sort of a New York transplant. Uh, I've been doing large animal medicine professionally for five years now. And I like to work on cows mostly. Cool. Do you have like headphones that have a little mic attached to them? I don't, unfortunately. Hmm. I wonder. Do you know where the mic on your um, computer is? I think it's in the front section here. That's pretty good in. right now. So I Lean think in. what you're unfortunately gonna have to do is yeah, really get up and close <laughs> with your computer. Perfect. Up and close too, so you feel less weird about it. Okay. Um, great. Thanks. Okay. Great. <laughs> Perfect. So yeah, I mostly work on cows. Uh, I spend most of my time driving from farm to farm where the cows live. And I work with the cows owners, the dairymen, to help keep them healthy and productive. 
Awesome. Um, so we already have, so basically your job is to make sure all of the animals, mostly at farms, are, are healthy. And um, when you say productive, do you mean productive in producing more cows, in producing milk, um, in producing beef? Like what are we trying to produce here? Yeah, so I primarily work with dairy cows. Uh, most common dairy cows look like this. They're black and white spotted. That breed is called a Holstein. Although now the breed of Jersey, it's called, they're a little bit smaller brown cows. They're becoming more popular for dairy, meaning milk production. And so for the most part, the cows that I work with are used to make milk every day, but then they also uh, need to become pregnant in order to make milk. So they also make baby cows too. Uh, I do work with probably a couple percentage points of my uh, producers are beef producers. And so they just make baby cows. And at the end of that cow's lifetime, they become beef. So that's their product. Uh, sometimes we'll work with chicken producers or hog producers, so pork and chicken. Uh, and then honeybees are also a production animal species, right? So we do sometimes work with honeybee producers or so that's a pretty wide variety of animal types that you have to be a vet for, like everything from a, a group of insects to a huge cow. Like, how did you prepare to be a vet for so many different types of animals? Absolutely, that's a great question. So any veterinarian, when they graduate from their four years of veterinary school after graduating from undergrad, so from college, uh, any veterinarian, if they pass their examination, is qualified to practice on any species of animal. So any animal, insect, reptile, that's not homo sapien, that's not a human. Uh, and so legally, I could turn around and go work on an elephant tomorrow and that would be fine. However, a lot of us have different species that we are more comfortable with. And so I choose to work on this large animal species that I'm most comfortable with. Uh, but I have a friend actually who he works at the local zoo as well. So he works with me on cows most of the time, and then he might go help out with the giraffe uh, on the weekend. Cool. Um, all right. So we're going to get into some uh, questions from the audience. Uh, all right. So, Samantha, what is your favorite animal to work with, and how did you get started working with that animal? Yeah. So, I obviously really like cows. When I was a young kid, I sort of went through different stages of liking different animals. So when I was like three years old, I loved cats and then wolves and then dogs and then manatees and then horses. And finally we ended on cows, at least for now. Uh, so who knows what phase I might go through in the future. But for now, I really like working with cows. I like how big they are. I like how functional they are. And I like how physically and mentally Awesome. The next question is from Cameron. Do animals come to your office or do you go to each animal's home? For me, I get calls uh, at my office and then I drive to where that animal is located. Most of the time it's on a farm, but sometimes people just have animals in their backyards and so I work on them there. I did actually have one poor horse that was feeling so badly that the owners brought it into their living room, so I did one time work on a horse in a living room, uh, but for the most part, it's on the farm. 
some large animal veterinarians, especially out west, uh, where some of the farms don't have a lot of facilities, will have what we call a haul-in facility, where an owner might put their animals on a trailer and bring them to the practice, and then the vets work on them there. But I work on them at their houses. At their house, sounds good. Um, and keep keep leaning, keep leaning. Um, the next question is, uh, oh, can Miss Goldman's class from Pawtucket, Rhode Island, get a shout out? Our class motto is go for the gold, if you're able to add that in. Big time shout out, Miss Goldman from Pawtucket. Um, Rhode Island is a beautiful state. Uh, I used to live near there. Anyway, uh, Gavin Myers, do you ha have to get a different veterinary degree for being a vet at a zoo specifically or any other like certificate to work at a zoo? Or is it like you said before, like one vet degree rules them all? That's a great distinction. So in human medicine, you go through your four years of medical school and then human medical doctors have to do continuing training after that to be able to practice in some sort of specialty. As a veterinarian, I have the choice to do a specialized internship or residency if I chose to, but you also don't have to. So I am just a DVM, which is Doctor of Veterinary Medicine, uh, and so anyone can use that to practice on anything, but you can also choose to specialize. And a lot of folks who say work at zoos do have continued special training, either in exotics or in internal medicine or something like that. And I could also choose to pursue a residency in very productive medicine if I wanted to, uh, but you do not get paid any more for doing that. So I have not. <laughs> Sounds good. If you don't get paid more, yeah, I, I would say what's the point, but education is, is valuable, but, but still, yeah, if, if it works without it, it works. Um, Jonah would like to know, are you a vegetarian? I am absolutely not a vegetarian, and that's an interesting question. Uh, I did not want to become a veterinarian when I was younger because I was actually family friends with a veterinarian, and I knew that being a veterinarian involved sometimes having to make about animals. And so when I was a lot younger, I didn't think I could make those decisions, but then I did actually start hunting as a means of population control. And that's why I am a large animal veterinarian because I am concerned with keeping populations of animals healthy. Awesome. So could you tell us a little bit more about why hunting seems maybe like it's not good for animals, but actually is super healthy for their populations? Because that's really counterintuitive for a lot of people. Absolutely. And for the most part, I'm speaking about deer hunting. And so deer as a species, white-tailed deer in particular, are what we call a boundary species. And so we think about deer as living in woods, but they actually live best on the edge of woods. So between where the woods meet, you know, farm fields, people's backyards, suburbia, that sort of thing. And so with the way that we are expanding our human habitat, we are actually creating a massive amount of deer habitat, and we are increasing the number of deer through that habitat change, but we've also decreased the amount of predators that we have. And so because of that, there are massive numbers of deer in a lot of places, and not a lot of population control for those deer. So by hunting them, you can ensure that you can make the deer able to environmental benefits that are there so that we don't have 
Awesome. So we're having a little bit of trouble hearing you, but I think what I just heard is basically if you hunt them, you keep them in a population that they can basically be healthy, they can find enough food, um, and that our expansion into more suburban areas and creating more human space is making more deer space because they like to live in those like boundaries. So what is it about a boundary that like is good for deer? Well, deer are really interesting. If you take an uh, infrared camera, which most people in the urban backyard that might border the woods or a wetland or even um, cornfields or something, you can use that infrared camera and find that there are deer hanging out in the backyard during the day. So that's the deer's natural habitat is hanging out on the edge of the forest, not in the deep forest as much. Interesting. Um, Greg would like to know, what is your bachelor's degree in? Uh, I, you can have a bachelor's degree in anything to become a veterinarian, but you do have to fulfill a number of prerequisite requirements, mostly in biology, chemistry, and mathematics. Mm -hmm. And so I did I uh, majored in molecular biology and biological and environmental sciences. Let's play around with, um, like, do you know where on your computer your... Uh, microphone is not really does that help it already sounds great whatever you just did made it okay great. we'll try that <laughs> you know, we're just going to keep playing with it throughout the session sorry everybody for our technical issues today um all right the next question is from emmy emmy is six years old do you have any pets i do i have two pets i have a yellow lab named aspen and i have a cat named b although i would argue that the cat is actually aspen's cat they love Oh, that's cute. Um, Savannah would like to know, what is your daily job look like? Can you like take us through a, a general day in your life? Absolutely. So I start out my day by hopping into my truck uh, that lives in my house, which is very nice. And my truck is full of all sorts of supplies that I might need to help the animals on the farms. Uh, and I drive to the farms for the most part in the morning. I have farms that I'm already scheduled to visit on a weekly or monthly basis. And then I go to those farms and I perform reproductive exams on those cows. And then in the time that's remaining, I will call into my practice and see if there are any sick calls of animals that need my attention or farms that are having issues that would like some extra help. Cool. Um, the next question is from the Torah Academy. We've got two questions that are sort of related to each other. One, what do cows do when they get cold? And I know that uh, cows live in some pretty hot places. I know in Pennsylvania in the summer, it gets hot. Where, what do cows do when they get hot and when they get cold? Yeah, so cows are very cool in that they process food in a big stomach compartment. Mm -hmm. And the cow's stomach has four parts to it. And the second part is called the rumen. And it's a big fermentation vat. And so fermentation is a chemical process where you can break down food that you wouldn't be able to break down uh, just normally in like a human type stomach. And so cows can eat a lot of stuff that humans can't. And the reason I bring this up is because fermentation makes heat. And so cows actually have their own internal heaters. And so because of that, and because they're really big, they have a really big uh, body mass to surface area ratio, which is a sort of concept in biology where animals that are larger tend to tolerate 
colder temperatures because they don't have as much body skin out getting cold. Um, the cow actually prefers cooler temperatures. So as long as the cow doesn't have direct wind on them, they do fine pretty much anywhere. Um, we like to keep our barns at around 50 degrees if possible. So that brings up in the summertime, the cows get very hot and they also don't like humidity that well. So we will put in a ton of fans. We have sprinklers for the cows uh, and we try to keep the curtains on the side of the farm up so that there's not as much wind, uh, sun excuse me, coming out because the cows also don't like that either. So we do a lot to try to control the environment to keep them comfortable, but not so much that they're not feeling like they are acting like a normal cow. Right. Cool. Interesting. Um, Brielle would like to know, what's the biggest animal that you've ever worked with? Oh, I have a farm who has a number of cows that are very big. And they actually named the oldest cow Shaq after Shaquille O'Neal. She's like six foot. Um, I actually had to do a surgery on one of her daughters the other week. And so we decided to do the surgery in a different way so that I could reach all the body parts that I needed to because she's so big. Wow. But just big cows, pretty much. Some horses, I do work on Belgian horses, uh, which are like the Budweiser horses. Uh, they can also be very large. Yeah, no kidding. Um, for anyone who, who doesn't know uh, what Budweiser is in the crowd, the Clydesdales are the ones that kind of look like they've got like floofy feet. Like they're, they're just the biggest biggest horses I've ever seen. They're unbelievable. Um, yeah, their hooves are like the size of dinner plates. So big, like borderline scary. There's so <laughs> um, Jenilyn wants to know, don't cows have two tummies? No, so they actually, technically from a veterinary perspective, they have one stomach, but it has four compartments. And okay. the name of those compartments, here's quiz time for anyone in animal science school, is the reticulum the rumen, the omasum, and the abomasum. Sounds good. Um, the next question is, how many baby animals have you delivered? So interestingly, a lot of the farms, when they're having calves or foals, for the most part, we train the farmers to know how to deal with those. So I don't help with normal calvings or foalings or kiddings or lambings. Kidding is when a goat has a baby. We call it a kid, um, not a human. Uh, and so I usually don't help out with the normal ones. I get called for the bad ones. Uh, and so I would say that I help out with probably two to three births a week. Um, the less, the better, as far as I'm concerned, because usually they don't call me. People don't get involved if things are going normally. Good. Sounds cool. Um, Isabella would like to know, is vet school difficult and how do you prepare uh, for going to vet school? Yes, vet school is very difficult. Um, some people liken it to drinking out of a fire hose in that you have to try to absorb massive amounts of information thrown at you all at one time. Um, and how you prepare for it is doing a good job in college, really learning how you learn best. So I learned that I learned best by writing things down manually and by teaching. So building those study skills are massively important. 
Um, and then the application process is also very difficult. So that weeds people out as well. Um, and if you're interested in applying to veterinary school, it's different than human medical school in that you need to have a massive amount of veterinary shadowing hours and animal contact hours. So not necessarily with the vet, but hanging out with the vet. Uh, because they want to know that you are serious and you understand the challenges of the profession because there are a fair number of challenges. For sure. Awesome. Thank you. Um, Mrs. Carrick students and a couple other groups as well want to know how old were you when you realized that you wanted to be a vet? So I'm actually one of the weird ones. It took me a long time to figure out I wanted to be a vet. My granddad always thought I should be a vet and I told him that my arm was too short, but I was wrong. <laughs> my arm is not too short to be a vet. I knew that if I was going to be a vet, it would be a large animal vet just because that's the sort of person that I am. So I did not under, uh, decide to become a vet until I was in college. So I was about 20, 20 years old. Sounds good. The next question uh, we've got from a couple different people. What is your favorite part about your job and your least favorite part about your job? My favorite part about my job is when I can educate a producer in a way that they change their behavior and make life better for all the animals that they take care of. I really like teaching people the newest science and helping them make things better for their animals. So their animals don't get I never have to look at them, that's great. Um, one of the more challenging parts about my job is when I do that teaching and people don't listen to me. Yeah, that's frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> As a science communicator, I really feel your pain. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, and also everybody dealing with COVID right now, like we know what we're supposed to be doing, but how many of us are doing it? It's, it's tough. Um, yep. Cool, all right, so what is the smallest animal you've ever worked with? Oh man, I don't work with many small animals, luckily for me. Uh, however, a normal small animal doctor or an exotic doctor especially will sometimes treat really tiny creatures. Um, I do sometimes help out with some barn cats that might have been born, barn kittens that might have been born on a farm. I might try to help with them. But usually my smallest client animal would be a goat kid or a lamb. And those are this big, oh my God. little pygmy ones. Yeah. So cute. My one time um, I was having a party at my house in grad school and my friend's parents uh, have a goat farm and she brought a baby goat to the party and it was the cutest. I like, I couldn't believe how cute a baby goat was. It was, it overwhelmed me. It was so cute. They're um, very cute, but they have big attitudes. I bet they do. Yeah. <laughs> That's, that's that's super cool. The next question is, how do you put animals under anesthesia? This is from our uh, very loyal listener, Gavin. Is it uh, a blow dart by hand with a shot? How do you do it? So my clinic has made a point not to purchase a dart gun because we do not want to have to be called out and stand around for four hours when we try to start something. So we put the onus on the owner to say, if we're going to look at your animal, you have to have it in some sort of corral or pen so that we can get our hands on them somehow. Unfortunately, just because a cow will let you put them does not mean a cow will let me examine them. Right. So we don't do any of that. Um, sorry, I was getting distracted by that blow dart question. What was the other, the first part? How do you put them under anesthesia? Oh, anesthesia, that's right. Okay, so 
for small animal medicine, for the most part, we use uh, gas anesthesia for animals. And so that's where they are pre-medicated with an IV drug. And then that animal is actually fully anesthetized. On the large animal side, you guys know when you go to sleep and you lay on your arm and your arm goes numb after a while? So in large animal medicine, if you lay an animal down in full anesthesia, their entire body goes numb because they weigh so much. There's nothing protecting them from that. And so we try not to fully anesthetize large animals. You, some people will fully anesthetize horses, but in order to do that, you have to have a skull that's completely padded. Uh -huh. And so you have to be able to go in there and when the horse is recovering from anesthesia, you know, people get a little loopy. You guys might've seen those funny videos on YouTube of people recovering from surgery. Animals are the same way, and so they can even break legs, they can injure themselves more coming out of anesthesia because we have no way of telling them, hey, sit still, calm down. So we try to not put animals under general anesthesia. When I'm doing surgery, I do essentially what they would do to a human who has their lips. I block the area so they don't feel any pain, I give them a bunch of pain medications, and then I use the Sounds good. Cool. Um, we've got an excellent question from Brielle. If dinosaurs were still alive, would they fall under your care? Yeah. Well, not mine. Well, maybe mine. Maybe I would be a dinosaur specialist if they were still around and I would know a lot more about reptiles. Um, but I know almost nothing about reptiles besides just the normal veterinary school stuff. So I think based on my current knowledge, uh, I would refer them to an exotic specialist. Awesome. Um, Lisa says, are we going to see any animals today? And I think the answer is no, but can you show us your cool uh, gadget that you brought with us with you today? Yeah, for sure. Well, I can, Aspen, come here. Whoop. I can at least show you my pet here. Okay. I can show you a bearded dragon that I have in the room. <laughs> What's that? I have a bearded dragon in the room. I can show you that. Unfortunately, I can't show you guys any cows because most of the farms don't have Wi-Fi, so that would not work very well for this day. But uh, let's see if I can show you some cows. Not as exciting. Oops, there we go. Does that still work for sound? Still works for sound. So far, so good. This is actually my boyfriend's dog, and he is a medical mystery. He has not one, but two autoimmune diseases. Oh, poor guy. Notice, do you see how his head looks like a skeleton? Yeah. So he actually has a disease where his immune system attacks the muscles on his head. And Only the muscles on his head it attacks? Yes. Just the the vaccinations, the best the muscles that they need to do. So he unfortunately is on a lot of medications, <laughs> but he still uh, he still gets around just fine. Yeah. Well, that's so good. This is a dog. Okay. Come here. Aspen, come here. <laughs> Your dogs are very well behaved. They're like doing exactly what you do. This is Aspen. She's my dog. So there you go, you guys got some animal content for the day. <laughs> Great. Um, okay, 
couple rapid fire questions before uh, you do the uh, ultrasound show. Um, how long do cows live? So if you let a cow go and just let it spend for itself, it would probably live on average maybe five to 10 years. Okay. Uh, we tend to limit the life of a cow because if you remember, cows make milk to start and they also make calves. If it's a female, sometimes the males help. We'll, we should keep a few males around to help with that, not many. Uh, and then at the end of their life, they also become another product, beef. Mm -hmm. and so we tend to limit the life of cows because we want to make good milk products, good calf products, and also healthy beef products. And older cows tend to not be as prolific as a beef product. Fair so enough. the life of a dairy cow is around five years. Um, a beef cow is a little bit longer because we can only have one calf a year. Right. Cool. Um, how long does it take to milk a cow? Uh, so we shoot for, from the time the cow walks into the parlor, which is the area where they have all these different meals from, to the time they leave, we shoot for about eight minutes. Eight, eight minutes? That's so short. Yeah, and that includes the amount of time that it takes to clean the udder and to stimulate the because we want the cow to wet on their milk appropriately. And so they have to be clean. And that cleaning, we want to be consciously We also want the teeth to be stimulated appropriately. So that takes about a minute as well. So, and then you have to put the machine on them. So usually the machine is only on for a handful of minutes. Wow, that's wild. Okay, yeah. let's, uh, let's see your ultrasound machine. Okay, yeah. So I think I mentioned to you guys that I spend a lot of my time doing reproduction, reproduction exams on cows. And so the way that I do that is that the uterus of a cow lives right below their rectum. And so the best way to get a good view of that uterus is to put my arm in their butt. So having a little bit of issue hearing you, I can hear, I can make out what you're saying, but it's a little bit tough. Okay. I'll try to lean forward again. Okay. So I use a big long glove glue them up here that I put on my arm. Uh-huh. I put this glove on my arm all the way up to my shoulder. And I use my left hand so that I can still write things with my right hand. I put this glove on and then I put on a portable ultrasound machine, which looks like this. So I have these goggles that I wear and then these goggles attach to this machine here that I just wear on my back in a little backpack. And then I stick this probe, which looks very much like an ultrasound probe that you would see at the doctor. And it shoots ultrasound, so ultrasonic sound waves out the bottom. And then depending on what those waves hit, it bounces back an image that I can see up here above my head. Cool. And so when the ultrasound waves get sent out, they bounce back if they hit something really dense, like stone. They don't bounce back if they just keep going through fluid. And so when the waves come back, that looks white. And if they don't come back, that looks black. So I see sort of black and white TV up here. And I can show you guys uh, some pictures of what I'm looking at most of the time when I'm doing reproductive exams. 
So I'll go ahead and share my screen here. And so this is uh, pictures of what these uh, pregnancies might look like. So here is a 25 day pregnancy, which is about as teeny tiny as you're gonna be able to see. Uh, and then it moves over to a 30 day pregnancy and then a 35 day pregnancy over here. So I, for the most part, diagnose pregnancies around day 28 up to about day 45, which would be somewhere around here. And then I can also do a gender check on those calves. So I can tell the breeder if that calf is going to be a male or a female. And I also let them know if they're a healthy calf or not. That's so cool. There we go. I'll see if I can unshare now. There we go. Okay. Okay. Is it back or is it split? We can see it. Okay. There we go. So yeah, that's what I spend most of my time doing on my normal cruise. That's awesome. That's super cool. Um, all right. So you've said, is your, is your favorite, okay, you said that your favorite animal to work on is a cow. Is that, are cows your favorite animal of all animals in the whole world? Right now, I think so. I am getting very curious about hedgehogs recently, so I might learn about those just for fun in my spare time. But yeah, I really like cows. I also That's awesome. like mustelids, so I really like weasels and pine martens and you know that sort of thing. I think they're pretty cool. They're cool. Um, here's a question from Gavin again: Is it true that cows can sense the rain? Yeah, so if you see a group of cows out on pasture, uh, you'll notice that they do change orientation. And a lot of times, you know, before a storm, they might group together somewhat and they all tend to have their butts facing into the wind. Because, uh, you know, you would rather have the wind at your back than blowing into your face. Yeah. I think that has a lot to do with barometric pressure, but we're not really sure. Sounds good. Um, what is the feistiest animal that you've ever worked with? Oh man. I'm trying to think here. There are certain breeds of cows that are more or less tame. And so I would say the feistier the animal, the less domesticated or tame they are. So most cows are not trained per se. Um, you know, they do know their schedule of going to the parlor and getting fed and drinking water and laying down and hanging out with their cow friends. Um, but I wouldn't say they're tame necessarily. Um, and there are definitely some types of beef cows, especially, that are pretty not tame. Uh, so there are actually two species of cows. We have Bosch Taurus and Bosch Indicus. And Bosch Indicus is more the cow that has the big hump on their um, withers, we call it, like at the base of their neck. And they can sometimes have long, floppy ears. They're like the cows you might see in India or in South America. And they, interestingly, are less domesticated. They tend to be a little wilder. And they also are more heat tolerant. So they do better in the central portion of the globe. Uh, where it's hotter. They could dump heat out of their ears and stuff. But they tend to be real feisty. Um, 
and I used to work at a bull stud, which is where they raise bulls and they collect semen from those bulls to inseminate cows with. Um, and they sometimes I had to work with those bulls, and it was a rule that you always went into the pen with two people at least, and the bull was always restraining two ways because they could kill you. Wow, that sounds pretty exciting. Yeah, um, that's super cool. Let's see. Um, so a bunch of people have asked, like, other than mammals, do you ever work with um, reptiles or any other non-mammals? In New York, we don't really have any reptile farms, per se. Um, I do do a little bit of honeybee stuff. Um, sometimes people will have blocks of something that they want to ask me about. So I had a friend who recently started a duck farm. So... He had some questions for me, but for the most part, working on mammals. Cool. Um, can you tell, or how can you tell whether a calf is healthy or not while it's in the womb? Yeah. So I look at ultrasound images of baby calves minimum three hours a day. You just get used to it. I interestingly, when I was interviewing for this job, one of my bosses, I was riding around with him. He's a very accomplished veterinarian. And we were on a farm and they had a calf that was born that had a cleft palate. And they said, hey, Jack, we want to show you this calf with a cleft palate, which is where the top of their mouth doesn't develop appropriately. And they said, Doc, when you ultrasound this cow, you told us that there was something wrong with the calf. And we got back into the truck later and I asked him, how the heck did you find on ultrasound that calf had something wrong, and he said, I don't know. So it's just kind of a feeling you develop after doing it for a long time. That's cool. That's super cool. Um, okay, I don't understand this question, but I'm hoping that you will. How many displaced abomassums do you do a week on average, and what the heck is that? <laughs> okay, so if we shorten it out, so the word is the shortening we use is DA uh -huh. for displaced abomassum. And you might remember the abomasum is the fourth stomach chamber. Oh, right. It's the stomach that's the most similar to a human stomach or a dog's stomach. It's acidic. It does most of the, you know, squishy type of digestion. Um, and cows, especially dairy cows, for some reason, we haven't quite figured it out, but when they stop eating, their stomach will flip from one side of their body to the other. And fill with gas. Um, sometimes it stays where it is and it just twists on itself. Um, and so we call that displaced, so not in the correct place, and then abomasum, the name of the stomach. Yeah. And so how many surgeries I do really depends on the economic environment that the dairy is in. So whether or not it's worth it for that dairy to do the surgery on that cow or to ship that cow down the road and become her next future, which is a beef product. Um, and it also depends on the day of the week it is, that sort of thing. Um, right. I would say right now I'm doing probably between well, three to eight a week. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, it's fun. Wow, okay. Um, the next question is, are cows born in one season typically or are they born all year? So a lot of species do have a season where they're born um, and that season has a lot to do with whether or not this, the animal becomes fertile at a certain time of the year. 
And so cows are not technically having a season and that they don't stop being fertile for the whole year. So horses, for instance, they usually only come into heat starting in the spring and then spring, summer, and early fall. Cows can come into heat all year round, which means they can get bred all year round. But because of the fact that cows don't like heat that much, um, at least around here, we do see a bit of a decrease in fertility in those cows in the summer months because they just don't want to get They're not happy, generally speaking, yeah. Yeah. Um, do cows eat anything other than grass? Absolutely. So cows are really an impressive species and that they can get nutrients from a lot of things that humans can't. And so a lot of the cow feed that we feed to cows, we could never eat ourselves because we would just, it would just come out the other end and we would have not gained any calories from it, right? right. So because of that rudeness, they can really digest a lot of different things. And so uh, most cows who are in a production situation feed them things that may give them a balanced diet and that they can eat and be really protected. So they're sort of on a really like high intensity athlete type of diet. We really try to, we, there's people who are uh, dairy nutritionists and beef nutritionists who spend their whole career making sure that those cows eat exactly what they need. So they don't have any, they don't get any burgers. So uh, the cows, they, for the most part on the farms around here, there are two big things that they eat, are grass, or hay, but that hay has been fermented a little bit already, so it's already kind of broken down. Um, so it's easier for the cows to get energy out of. And then corn silage, so that's corn plus the stalk and the leaves, that's also been fermented already. And then we add into that a grain mix, which is full of vitamins, minerals, fat, protein, all kinds of stuff to help keep them tip-top shape because a, a good producing cow runs the equivalent of a metabolic marathon every day. Whoa. Yeah. They are really pushing it, those ladies. And so we really have to make sure that their feed is extremely healthy or else they do have health problems. Right. All right. Well, we try to keep these sessions to be about 45 minutes and we like to ask everybody the same two questions before we wrap up. The first question is, um, if you had everyone in the, the whole world's attention for a moment and you could tell them one thing about cows, what would that be? Oh man, about cows. I think I would probably tell them more about dairy farmers than about cows. And the thing that I would tell them about dairy farmers is that they are the hardest group of individuals, hardest working group of individuals that I've ever worked with. And that's why I decided to be a dairy veterinarian because I wanted to help out this group of people who works extremely hard to make a really high quality food product. Awesome. And then the second question is, you still have everybody's attention in the whole world and you can tell them one thing about literally anything. It can be as big picture or silly as you'd like. I think I would tell them that the scientific method is difficult to understand and not to just read science headlines and take those conclusions, but to really understand how the study was designed. Is it actually answering the question it says it's answering? Science is a really powerful tool, but it can be used 
and misused in a lot of ways. And you know, you can collect the data set and you can make that data tell you whatever you want if you are not a scientist who is correctly using the scientific method. So I think if I could force everyone to take one class, it would be a class on the scientific method and understanding that there's no such thing as proving anything right. We can only prove things wrong. That sounds great. Thank you so much. Um, all right, everybody. Oh, one more thing. Do you have anything you'd like to plug and where can we find you like on social media or any other places? Oh man. So I don't have that awesome of a social media presence, but I think that uh, if you're interested in dairy medicine, that sort of thing, there is a veterinarian who does a great job of being a good advocate. Her name is Marissa Hake, H-A-K-E. Um, and she calls herself, I think, the dairy calf vet or something like that. Um, if you're interested about the life of dairy cows and what it's like to be a dairy farmer, there's a dairy farmer who has a blog called Dairy Carry, C-A-R-R-I-E. Um, and then if you're in Western New York and you need a veterinarian, a large animal veterinarian, I work for Perry Veterinary Clinic. Uh, you can feel free to give us a call. And we, you know, take care of large animals. We also have small animal clinic as well. Um, yeah, so those are where you can look things up. I think if you're interested in beef cow topics, um, oh shoot, I'm gonna forget the guy's name. There's a number of vets out there that are pretty interesting on social media. Um, there's also a guy in the UK that's called the Hoof GP. And so he's a cow foot trimmer who has a, a cool YouTube series that talks about trimming feet on cows and why we do that and that sort of thing. So he's sort of like the nail salon for the cows. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today and answer all of our questions. Um, we had a ton of questions come in today. So if we didn't get to your question, I'm sorry, we really tried to get to all of them. Um, and Sarah, if thank people, you so much for signing. If people would like, I can try to um, type out some answers for them. So if you have a question that you would like answered that we didn't get to, I'm not sure if maybe you can email them to me and I can then email back and we can figure something out. Yeah, sure. Um, what is, let's type your email address into the Q&A. Yeah. Uh, I'll just put it under guest, gestation period. Um, what is your email? dr.emsaco at gmail. All right. Well, thank you so much again for taking the time to be with us today. Um, and Sarah, thank you so much for signing for us today. We really appreciate the time you took to be with us. Um, and everybody else, we will see you next time. Uh, the next group of sessions are all going to be about antibiotic resistance. We've got two scientists uh, that will be talking to us. You can always check up on our schedule at uh, skypescientist.com click the events tab, and then you'll be able to see everything we have going on for the rest of the year. And if you have anything that you really, really want to see in our schedule for 2021, um, <laughs> go ahead and send us an email at skypeascientist at gmail.com, and we can uh, schedule a session of, in what you're interested in. Um, all right. Thank you again for being here today, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye, guys. Thanks for the questions.